the Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardis from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardis alum. This week, Vayetze. This week, Yiska Smith discusses Vayetze. Yiska Smith is an adjunct member of the Pardis faculty. And now, Yiska Smith. Yaakov's Oath. The paradox between two disparate aspirations. Are we here for ourselves? or to be in service to something greater than ourselves. This session addresses the spiritual practice of holding paradox and cultivating these and these are both the words of the living God. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, as we see in Talmud Eruvin 13b. This sharing is based on the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson's teaching in Likutei Sichot, Volume 25, adapted by Rabbi Yanki Tauber. <clears throat> the Rebbe asks the everlasting theological, philosophical, and spiritual question that has intrigued, bothered, and compelled humankind to answer throughout all of history. Why are we here? All possible answers to this question fall into two general categories. A. For ourselves. For example, to enjoy life, realize our potentials, achieve transcendence. And B. To be in service to something greater than ourselves. For example, society, history, God. What makes this question so difficult to address is that we sense both A and B to be true. On the one hand, we are strongly driven to better ourselves, to get the most out of every experience and opportunity. We also sense that this is not necessarily a shallow selfishness, but something very deep and true in our souls, something implanted in us by our Creator as intrinsic to our identity and purpose. On the other hand, we may be equally aware that we are part of something greater than ourselves, that if our existence has meaning, it is only because it serves a reality beyond its own finite and subjective being. Indeed, we find both sensibilities expressed by our Torah tradition. On the one hand, the Torah repeatedly stresses that God's program for life is for the good of humankind, both materially and spiritually, as we read in Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, which is the second portion of the Shema, and as well in Leviticus in Vayikra 26, 3 through 13. Quote, the mitzvot were given only to refine humanity, says the Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah 44.1, and in the Talmud, Makot 23b. The Talmud in Sanhedrin 37a even goes so far as to state, Hebra, every person is obligated to say, the world was created for my sake. Kol echad ve'echad chayav lomar, bishvil li nivra ha'olam. Thus, the Balatanya, Rabbi Shemir Zaman of La'adi, describes in Lukutei Torah the saga of the soul as a, quote, descent for the purpose of ascent. Yerida Shetzericha Aliyah. 
The soul's entry into the physical state entails a curtailment, a compromise of sorts, of its spiritual faculties and sensitivities. But the purpose of this is that it be elevated, or she be elevated, by the challenges and achievements of earthly life. On the other hand, Matzad Sheni, the highest praise that the Torah has for Moshe Rabbeinu, who the Rambam refers to as the very father of prophecy in the 13 principles, fundamental principles, where he says, Yet the highest praise that the Torah has for Moshe Rabbeinu is that he's a servant of God. In Deuteronomy 34.5, Devarim, Lamed Dalet, Hey, Eved Hashem. Our sages repeatedly exhort us to strive for altruism in our lives so that everything we do is permeated with the recognition that, quote, I was not created, but to serve my creator. Ani lo nevrati ela l'shamesh et koni as taught in the Talmud in Kedushin 82b. To understand the interplay, the intersectionality, and the interconnectedness between these two apparently contradictory, disparate beliefs and the respective places they hold in the purpose of our lives, we must first examine a juncture in the life of Yaakov Avinu, the Ramban Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who passed in 1270, writes that, quote, everything that happened to the patriarchs is a signpost for their children. Ma'aseh avot siman lebanim. These events all come to instruct the future. When something happens to one of the avot, one understands from it what is decreed to occur to his descendants. The Rebbe continues, more than role models or sources of inspiration, which our matriarchs and patriarchs are, the lives of our forefathers and foremothers are all inclusive blueprints that map every fork and turn in the road of our lives, addressing every dilemma and paradox that may confront us. <clears throat> the Yorachayim, Rav Chaim ben Moshe ibn Atar, Moroccan biblical commentator, who passed in 1743 in Yerushalayim, teaches that Yaakov's journey to Haran is actually the story of every soul's descent to earth. The soul leaves the ideal spiritual state behind, an existence steeped in divine awareness and knowledge to struggle in the employ of a Levan in a Haran environment. For the material state is a wicked deceiver, accentuating the corporeal and obscuring the godly, even confusing a person's priorities and perpetually threatening the virtue of the spiritual. But every soul is empowered as a child of Yaakov to make this a Descent for the purpose of ascent. Yerida Shetzericha Aliyah.
to emerge from the Haran of material earth with its integrity intact. Indeed, not only are the spiritual powers galvanized by the challenge, it also gains wealth, Rechush Gadol, having learned to transform the very forces and resources of the physical world to further its spiritual needs. Most significantly, in its spiritual state, the soul is perfect but considered to be, quote, in a metaphoric way, childless. Only when it dwells in a physical being can it fulfill the divine mitzvot, which are the soul's progeny and its link to the infinite and the eternal. The Midrash Tantchuma in Noach teaches that, quote, a person's progeny are his good deeds. And in this sense, we're all righteous people. On his way to Haran, Yaakov camped for the night on Har Moriah, Mount Moriah, where he had his famous dream in which he saw angels ascending and descending a ladder, reaching from earth to heaven. Upon waking in Genesis 28, 18, we read, Yaakov took the stone on which he slept and raised it as a monument. He then made an oath, a nether, which the Torah relates as follows in the next three verses, Genesis 28, 20, 21, and 22. If God be with me, and safeguard me on this road that I am traveling, and he will provide me with bread to eat and clothes to wear. And verse 21, and I will return in peace to my father's house, the Shafti, the Shalom, and God will be my God. And in verse 22, Then this stone, which I have erected as a monument, shall be a house of God. The syntactical construction of Yaakov's oath from the Rebbe's perspective here raises an important question in our relationship with the divine. The oath consists of two parts, the conditions tanaim for its fulfillment, if God will be with me, provide me bread to eat and clothes to wear, and the other part, Yaakov's fulfillment of the oath, once the conditions are met. Then this stone shall be a house of God. What is not clear, though, is where the former ends and the latter begins, the former being the conditions, the latter being the fulfillment of the oath. Verse 20 is obviously part of the conditions. 
things that God will do for Yaakov to enable him to fulfill the vow. The same applies to the first part of verse 21, and I, and if I return in peace to my father's house. Vishafti b'shalom el betavi. Verse 22 speaks of what Yaakov will do for God, the fulfillment of his oath. V'haya Hashem li... Slicha. Verse 22 speaks of what Yaakov will do for God, the fulfillment of the oath. But what about the second part of verse 21? And God will be my God. V'haya Hashem Adonai li l'Elohim. Is this part of the conditions for the vow's fulfillment, or is it part of the vow itself? In other words, does the second part of verse 21 mean, and God will be my God, or then God will be my God? This question expresses, Chavrei, the very heart of the matter. Experiencing the transcendental aspect of the Lord, of Adoshem, in an imminent, visceral, palpable way as my God. Li Lelohim. As a condition of the vow's fulfillment or as part of the vow itself. In fact, two of the greatest biblical commentators and thinkers, Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, who passed in 1105, and Nachmanides, the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who passed in 1270, debate this very point. According to Rashi, the first two verses, incomplete, are the conditions of Yaakov's vow. While the third verse is the fulfillment Meaning, in order for Yaakov to make this stone a house of God, Ha'evan Hazot, that it becomes a Beit Elohim, he requires to experience the divine as his God. This is a condition. The Ramban, however, sees the words as, then God will be my God, as part of the promise itself, not as a condition. Meaning that if God will provide Yaakov with protection, food, clothes, and a peaceful return, then he, Yaakov, in fact, will make God his God. And then the stone will be the abode for the divine presence. What is the deeper significance of these two interpretations? And why would the Torah recount Yaakov's oath in a way that allows for variant readings. In the Midrash Tantruma Parshatanaso, our sages describe the purpose of creation as, quote, God's desire for a dwelling in the lowly realms. Of course, in the rabbinical sense of the word, tachtonim, in modern Hebrew. God desired that there be a realm, a dira, that is lowly, a reality inhospitable to spirituality and godliness, and that this alien place actually be made into a dira, a dwelling, a home for the divine, an environment receptive and yielding to God's goodness and truth. Actually, the Balatanya explains in chapter 36, 
in Tanya that this lowly realm, this lowly place is our physical world of which none is lower in the sense that it obscures the light of God. To the extent that it contains forces which actually oppose God with the claim that I am the ultimate. There is none besides me. The physical world is actually the greatest concealment of the divine truth. A spiritual entity, for example, an idea or a feeling, exists to express something. A physical entity merely exists. The spiritual conveys that there is something greater than myself, which I want to be a part of, to be in service to. The physical proclaims, I am, contesting the truth that God is the ultimate and exclusive reality. But when a human being utilizes the resources and forces of the physical world to be in service to God, that individual sanctifies the material so that it too is in service to God, becoming transformed into an instrument, into an actual clea of godliness, rather than obscuring the divine presence. This is the meaning of Yaakov's oath to make Evan Hazot a house of God, a Beit Elohim. Yaakov is pledging himself to humankind's calling in life to fulfill the divine purpose for creation by making the material world a Beit Elohim. Yaakov is promising to make the stone, the brute substantiality of the physical world, into a divine abode. Is this self-fulfillment or is this in service to something greater? To achieve this, Yaakov requires several things from God. He is not negotiating for payment in return for his services, nor is he displaying, God forbid, arrogance by issuing an ultimatum. To the contrary, his conditions are exactly that those realities that will enable his soul to subsist in a physical body and achieve its aim of making the world a home for God. The Rebbe then asks, where does personal fulfillment figure in this construct, if at all? Can the dwelling of God in the lowly realms, the dirabatachtonim, be constructed mechanically by workers faithful to their employer, but devoid of all understanding and appreciation of what they are doing? Can the human being be in service to God without experiencing God as a personal and intimate presence in one's life? Ultimately, the Rebbe answers, no. God desires that we be in relationship with the divine, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6.5, as we say in the beginning of the Shema, the all of you. 
that our life's work should not be a robotic implementation of commandments that are vague, mysterious, and understood by few, but rather a labor of love, an expression of love that stimulates our minds, excites our hearts, and fulfills our every faculty. Is this another condition, or is it part of the mission itself? Now, Rashi, who comes to explain the literal meaning of the verse, views the issue in its quintessential simplicity. Why was man created? To serve the Creator. Everything else is a condition, a means to an end. If it is required that a person experience fulfillment in life, an imminent, palpable, visceral relationship with God, well, then God provides that person with such capacity, such as God provides the person with all the other necessary tools to fulfill one's mission. But this is secondary to the person's ultimate purpose in life, which is to make the world a home for God. The Ramban, however, reads the Torah through the lens of the mystic, with an eye to the experiential and anthropomorphic dimension of reality. From this perspective, a person's experience of the divine is not just a tool, but the very purpose of life. Indeed, in section 242b, the Zohar describes the purpose of creation in order that God be known by his or her creations. Kedai neda Elohim. As with all variant interpretations of Torah, Elu Elu Divri Elohim Chaim. These and these are both the words of the living God. The soul's elevation to a deeper relationship with God through its sanctification of physical life is both at the very same time. This is the paradox both a condition for and a component part of the purpose of creation. For the egotistical, self-oriented nature of a person is also part of Ha'evan Hazot, this stone, part of the obtuse physicality that is the lowest tier of God's creation, a stone. It too must be developed into a house of God, into an environment hospitable to the divine truth. This, if our service of God were to be something, oh, Hevra, if our service of God were to be something we merely submitted to, there could be no true dwelling in the lowly realm. It would mean that the physical reality has not really been transformed, but that an intrinsic state alien to its nature has been imposed upon it. A true dwelling in the lowly realm is a product of the very lowly realm itself, a product of the physical human being, appreciated by one's own physical mind, desired by one's own physical heart, and motivated by one's own physical self. Each one of us, therefore, possesses the capacity to be transformed into a house of God in the most of individual, unique, truthful, authentic ways. The Rebbe concludes by teaching that, therefore, an integral part of God's dwelling is a human self, 
for whom God is my God. For whom a life in the service of the Almighty, being in relationship with the divine, is in fact deeply satisfying and ultimate in self-realization. It's incredible. I would like to suggest that ultimately we are being called to remain open to both Rashi's and the Ramban's points of views, cultivating the practice of holding paradox in a true, these and these are both the words of the living God. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. I suspect that at times, in the spirit of Rashi's understanding, we need to first encounter the divine in a personal, uh, in an imminent, subjective way before we can engage in making a home for God in the lowly realm. At times, this is essential, that some type of sensing God's presence internally, within, moves us and inspires us to engage in and embrace the mission of transforming the stone into a house of God, ha'evan hazot into a Beit Elohim. Yet, at other times, in the spirit of the Ramban, we trust and simply embrace the mission, the shlichut, to make a home for God, a Beit Elohim, in the Dira Batachtonim, by transforming our physical selves and environment into a spiritual reality, thereby, in fact, encountering the divine presence within us as we convert, as we transform Ha'evan Hazot, this stone, into a house of God, into a Beit Elohim. In conclusion, I would like to suggest adopting the practice of becoming more aware of how each of you goes about expressing your Jewishness through Talmud Torah, through the observance of mitzvot, and through prayer or private contemplation. Pay attention to how much in the course of any given day, you are really sensing the presence of God as the springboard and inspiration for your Torah learning, for your observance, and for your prayer practice. Pay attention to how much, by the by first engaging in these practices, you actually begin to sense a closeness within and around you with the divine as a result. Observe as well if you are in fact experiencing as your purpose in life a sense of self-fulfillment, realization of potentials and enjoyment. Or perhaps you feel the experience of being in service to that which is greater than yourself as your purpose in life. Perhaps both. I would like to suggest that the presence of this remarkable intersectionality of these four, from two to four divergent themes as a basis for at least some, for quite a deep and profound religious experience of encountering the divine. I invite all of you to dwell in the paradox and with compassion hold space to encounter the fluidity and variety of the endless shades of gray that reside between the absolute, either black or white. May we all merit 
to transform Ha'evan Hazot into a Beit Elohim. Thank you, Yiska. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.